So this is from Luke. Uh, this is the story of the Benedictus. Zechariah singing uh, the hymn of praise uh, and the events leading up to it. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God... It happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcame, overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Skipping ahead to verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Their neighbors and and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, No, he will be called John. Then they said to her, None of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard about him took heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. Then Zechariah his father Uh, Then Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in, in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. 
He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness in His presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the light from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This might actually be a tiny bit high. There are two great hymns in Luke chapter 1. The first is the Magnificat, which is the name for the song that Mary sings uh, after the angel announces that she will give birth to the Messiah. And the second is the Benedictus, which Zechariah sings when his son, who we know as John the Baptist, is born. The focus of the hymns is on Christ, but unsurprisingly, Zechariah also mentions the role that his own son, John, will have. A couple of decades ago, I, was, I had a chat with a girl who got a brief part in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series. It was interesting to hear her explain the process of auditioning for the different roles. She told me that there was one, one job in particular that she didn't apply for because she wanted it so badly that the pain of not getting it would have been unbearable for her. So she just didn't apply. In God's providence, Sisham, Sisham, blah. In God's providence, she somehow got the job anyway. There was some crazy story about how she met somebody who knew someone who offered the job without, having, without her even having auditioned, just based on some of the previous work that she'd done or something along those lines. But this story of a girl who almost sabotaged her own career because she couldn't bear the disappointment of not getting this gig that she wanted so badly, when I heard of it, I couldn't help but think I heard maybe a dim echo of poor old Zechariah. He would rather doubt an angel and make a fool of himself than go through the heartache of getting his hopes up and his wife's hopes up only to have them dashed again, years after they finally got accustomed to not hoping for such joy. Now, I already know what some of the younger set are saying. Tim Carden, Tim Newton, probably Timmy Dunn if he didn't go up to church, uh, if he didn't go to kids' church. Yeah, whatever. Like you ever got to talk to a girl from Hollywood. Not likely. (laughs) But, I mean, come on. This was over 20 years ago, and I had lots more hair. (laughs) Things were different then. Even just a dozen years ago, I used to get, I used to pass around the paper for kids to mark the roll, and girls would leave little love hearts next to their name on the rolls, the roll marking. Uh, These were, uh, things were different back then. As I say, when I had more hair. But this isn't a sermon about hair loss and its humbling effects. This is a sermon about voice loss and its humbling effects and how to prevent it. Say, for example, that you lived 2,000 years ago and you were an old Jewish man and you happened to be the priest on duty at the Holy of Holies. Let's talk about what you should do in the event that an angel shows up as you burn incense 
and tells you that your elderly barren wife is going to have a baby. Well, I'll tell you what you should not do. What you should not do is ask for some kind of proof that what he's saying is really true. Because then he's going to respond with something like, what? You want some kind of ID or something? Assuming he talks like he's from Jersey. My ID is that I just showed up in the Holy of Holies with a message from God. You want more ID than that? Here's some more ID. You can't talk for the next nine months and eight days until the boy I just prophesied about is circumcised and named. And everything that I just said turns out to be true. There's my ID. Zechariah's incredulity, his unwillingness to believe, was kind of a comically absurd disbelief in what should have been the what should have been overwhelming evidence. It shouldn't be possible to doubt when an angel is standing in front of you. But he just couldn't accommodate this much good news into his worldview. If the angel had brought bad news about judgment, I bet Zechariah wouldn't have had a problem believing it. I don't think, I don't think Zechariah ever doubted God's love and faithfulness. But that was sort of like for all Israel in general. He wasn't expecting God's goodness to actually show up in his own life in such a dramatic way. In the way that spoke directly to what he must long for. Notice how different his response was from Mary when the same angel announced the birth of Jesus to her and explained that she would miraculously conceive. She replied, I am the Lord's servant. Zechariah, on the other hand, hears God's promises and asks for a receipt. Do you have a copy of that promise in carbon copy triplicates? Or maybe a non-fungible token or something? I mean, I don't know if heaven does use old-fashioned carbon copies or if you guys are on to or if you guys are up to speed with blockchain authentication or what. But I need some kind of evidence. This disbelief was a sin which did have its own consequences. He went mute for almost a year. But notice, the result was to make the story of the strange circumstances of John's birth all the more remarkable. It's like it added extra unexpected drama to the story of John's birth, which makes the story all the more likely to be remembered and passed on to an even larger number of people. Think about what the effect would have been. Uh, sorry. Think about the effect it would have been, it would have had when John finally did come to preach. Oh, yeah, this is that John. His mother was incredibly old, and his father was mute until he wrote out his name during the naming ceremony. Of course, when John did come to preach, he was all the more, all the more likely to have great numbers of diverse types of people come and hear his preaching just because of. Uh, just because of the circumstances of his own own birth. Obviously, his own fiery style of preaching would have only cemented his reputation as a must-hear speaker. But he may well have started with a kind of built-in appeal and interest in his message just based on the circumstances of his birth. Strangely, a big part of that is a consequence of his own father's initial disbelief in the angel's message. As for Zechariah, One commentator, Bach, notes that through the pain of discipline, he emerges a stronger man of God. Those who are arrogant, thinking they know it all, have no need for God or for instruction. Zechariah is not an arrogant man. So I think it's fair to say that God uses both his sin and his repentance. The hymn starts, and that's when Zechariah gives his hymn, the Benedictus. The hymn starts with the main point. Praise God, He has redeemed His people. 
When he mentions a horn of salvation, the metaphor has to do with a powerful animal, like a bull. And the horn is the business end of a strong animal. It is a metaphor used for talking about something very powerful. Here, the power of God. This sort of idea of a leader with great strength fits very naturally with what the expectations of a Messiah would be like. People expected that through military might, the Messiah would vindicate Israel. And what does the hymn say? Verses 69 and 70 uh, are actually just one kind of long sentence, which we've got up here. Uh, But think how natural it would be for Zechariah to say this if he assumed that God was about to raise up a militaristic Messiah. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's where the Messiah was supposed to come from, from David. Uh, Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. The apparent focus on war or military might might be unexpected for modern readers, but it's like a remnant of the time before Christ when the Jewish people naturally associated the Messiah with military conquest for Israel. Personally, I think this is just evidence that Luke was a good historian. He captured what Zechariah really said. This is the earliest statement of someone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice how early this is. Jesus hasn't even been officially named by his parents yet. That happened eight days after birth, uh, on the day the boys were circumcised. At the, moment at the moment that Zechariah gave his praise, Jesus was still in Mary's womb. But Zechariah was convinced that Mary's boy is the Messiah. So this is legitimate praise for the Messiah. Um, Zechariah speaks at the house of David. Obviously he's not referring, even though his own, his own son's birth is being celebrated, Obviously, he's not referring to his own child because David was from the tribe of Judah, but Zechariah and all the other priests were from the tribe of Levi. Mind you, we should be clear, Zechariah doesn't say anything is wrong, but I sure bet things didn't unfold the way he expected. I bet he didn't expect his newborn son would grow up to be beheaded by King Herod. I bet he didn't see the crucifixion coming. And yet, Zechariah's praise is true. Jesus is strong. He is stronger than death. He does defeat enemies, but he defeats spiritual enemies, not political ones. He defeats the enemies behind the enemies, as it were. Rather than just defeating political enemies, he defeats the source of enmity. The second part of the psalm goes all the way back, not to David, but to Abraham, even further back. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. I think the top line might be my favorite in the whole hymn. It sounds so odd at first. How exactly is he merciful to him? They died a long time ago. I think it means that all their turmoil, all the long, painful, difficult history of Israel, the slavery in Egypt, the breakup of Solomon's kingdom into the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the destruction of both kingdoms by foreign powers, just as the prophets foretold, the narrow escape from genocide at the hands of Haman, that's written down in the book of Esther, and a thousand other troubles. All of it was not in vain. At last God has come good on his promise of redemption. At last the Messiah is here to set things right. The praise begins in the second section, which deals with the promises God made to Abraham. Not promises to Abraham because Abraham because God owed Abraham anything, or because God was so impressed with Abraham, but because 
God is a loving God who promises to bless the whole earth through Abraham's seed. Zechariah continues, He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in His presence all our days. What a picture of, what a picture of Christ setting all things right. It sounds almost like a return to Eden. How different would our life be? your life be your mind, uh, if we trusted God and lived without fear, perhaps we would be less stressed, more loving. Lastly, notice the line, in His presence all our days. Remember that one of the titles for Jesus was Emmanuel. God with us is what that means. And that before He ascended into heaven, Jesus promised that He would not leave His disciples as orphans, but would leave, the, leave His Holy Spirit with us. Finally, we get to the third part. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways to give His people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah finally gets down to explaining the arrival of how the arrival of this Messiah relates to his own son. In this section, we see, uh, we noticed, sorry, in the first section, we noticed Zechariah's comments sort of fit in with other ancient expectations about a strong and powerful Messiah. In this section, I'm reminded, I'm reminded of those passages from the Old Testament which seem to predict the role and even specific elements of the life of Christ with eerie accuracy. Because the Messiah is here, he is keeping his promises to Abraham. He will bring salvation through the forgiveness of sins. The birth of John was the occasion for this whole hymn. And this hymn was apparently the first thing Zechariah said when he regained his ability to speak, which happened exactly as the angel said, when these things, the things the angel predicted, had taken place. As I thought about this, I began to wonder why it was such a big deal that the boy's name was called John. The biggest deal is probably that the name came from God. Not many people in the Bible can claim that. Abraham was re- Abram was renamed Abraham, and Jacob was renamed Israel by God. But as far as people who were directly named by God from birth, there's Adam, and then there's John and Jesus. That's pretty select company. That's already a pretty strong indication that what John is going to be about is a unique God-given task. And what was that special God-given task again? From verse 77 it says it. To give His people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now Jesus Himself has something to say about John. In Matthew eleven eleven, He said, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Really? Better than Amos, Daniel, Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, David, Moses? How is that possible? It is possible because out of all the people who have lived, John was the only prophet who could say, This guy right here, he is the Messiah. Of all the Old Testament prophets, none had a task or privilege as great as that. 
Certainly Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like himself, only greater, was coming. And certainly Isaiah spoke of the great hope coming into the world. But only John specifically identified the actual Messiah. And this is where things get interesting. In the second part of the verse of Matthew 11, 11. He says, Truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, there is risen none greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? Does that include Tim Newton and Andrew? And Neil? Greater than John the Baptist? Me? I'm a Christian, but I don't generally think of myself as greater than John the Baptist. But remember what made John the Baptist great. Yes, he preached with fiery conviction, and yes, he suffered for his message, but his true distinction was that he pointed people to exactly who the Messiah was. Of all the prophets, only he lived within the lifetime of the Messiah. He pointed people to the person of Christ. But he was executed. Think about this. He was executed before he ever had a chance to see see Christ's death and resurrection. John died without knowing any of these what we would consider fundamental truths about Jesus. People who follow Christ today take an understanding of all these things for granted. We live on the other side of God's great intervention in human history. Jesus took the punishment that rightly belongs to us. He died so that we can live in peace with God. We need only confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and we will be saved from sin. We have the joy of pointing people to the person and the work of Christ. We understand much more clearly than John the Baptist ever could what it means that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Because we live further along in redemptive history. We understand that we can proclaim much more clearly the majesty of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John celebrated the role that Sorry, Zechariah celebrated the, the role that his son had been given when he sang over his newborn boy. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare His ways to give His people a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, of their sins. But consider our own calling before God, which Jesus gives after His resurrection, just prior to His ascension into heaven. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. The God who called John to give witness to his Messiah has also commissioned you and I to share an even fuller message than was given John. So let me encourage you. Don't let your sin cause you to go voiceless about the good news of the gospel. Follow Zechariah's example. Repent of your known sins, uh, of, of known sin in your life, and proceed in the confidence that our good and loving God will restore you. As the book of Hebrews encourages us, let us set aside every hindrance to this and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The greatest gift you can give others is not knowledge, although I prize that as a teacher. It is not affordable housing with modern conveniences, although I've traveled through impoverished areas with no electricity or running water. The single greatest 
thing that you or I could do for another person is to introduce them to the God who stands ready to redeem everyone who calls on Him. So, good on you, Mabel, for going across the street to meet your neighbors, to evangelize to them. Good on you, Sasha and Rose, who happen to not be here today because they've got a family thing, for befriending the neighbors and sharing, for befriending your neighbors and sharing the gospel. As I reflected on this calling that started with, which John the Baptist have and which was given to us in even fuller form in the Great Commission, it occurred to me that it might be reasonable for us to all try to share the gospel in a clear way with one person, say, each month. You're welcome to aim for more here. Uh, and I don't want to be formulaic or legalistic about this. But at the same time, you're not going to get a higher authority than the Lord Jesus giving you a commission. So I don't really feel ashamed to be thinking about what, in concrete terms, we can do to fulfill the Great Commission. We have the greatest message that the world could hear. The God who made us and loves us is ready and able to redeem us. In fact, He is seeking us out, and His disciples are His emissaries. We have so much more to say about the Messiah than John the Baptist could have guessed. Despite that, I know that it can sometimes seem a little uncertain to go how to about. Uh, we can sometimes feel a little uncertain about how to go about sharing the good news. For help in this matter, D. A. Carson recommends a book called *Marks of the Messenger*. It's only short and it's very encouraging. A couple of online bookstores are having a big sale at the moment, and it's already been a great tool of God to prevent voice loss about the gospel. So I would encourage you to check it out, as it is likely to be of great practical benefit. But obviously the main thing is that, above all else, we must delight in our Savior, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. And from the joy that we have in knowing the God who loves us, from the overflow of that, we can share the good news of God's love for the world. All right, shall we pray? Dear God, thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you that you've come to us and that we can celebrate that at Christmas. Thank you that you've given... We have such a wonderful heritage of you reaching out to the world, even not only through your son, but even through John the Baptist to prepare the people to hear the message of your son. And that we have, part, we have a part to play in that too, sharing your sharing the knowledge of your love and goodness with the world. Thank you, Father, that uh, there is a role for us to play in evangelizing the world and proclaiming your goodness. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.